terrorism, climate change, violence on the streets, disease, earthquakes, floods and accidents, war, nuclear Armageddon. Am I getting you in a good mood? <laughs> Probably not, because these are the sort of headlines we see every day, which can be pretty scary. So much awful stuff going on in the world that when you list them together like that, it has the potential of being fairly depressing. But <laughs> on a day like Harvest Sunday, we're kidding ourselves if we don't talk about some of these things. Because at Harvest, we thank God for his provision. Of course we do. Yet we hold that intention with the fact that some areas of the world have little to celebrate. And it's easy to see, in some ways, a harvest of heartache around the world. So do we assume that God is only to be praised when the harvest table is full? That his presence can only be found when the table is full of his provision? Well, if that's the case, then God must have stopped visiting Zimbabwe. He doesn't call round Indonesia anymore, and God never sets foot in Iraq. Well, if we believe God is only good when the harvest is good, then we're going to think these sort of crazy things. But our psalm tells us that it is possible to praise God even in the midst of the worst harvest possible. But to get there, it's going to take some radical steps. And the first step is to have a radical faith. I wonder if you can picture yourself and you're running from an angry mob through the streets of your hometown. Now, hopefully this doesn't happen to you very often, but imagine it. And you are just out of breath. You're running. Maybe you've got your family and your loved ones with you. And this, this, this pack of wild people are running after you. And they've got big clubs and this uh, nail sticking out of them and everything. They are scary people. And you're running and you don't know what to do. And you're desperately scared. And you run around a corner and all of a sudden you see a fortress. And you think, if only I could get inside that fortress, I'd be safe. And as you're running up to the door, suddenly the door opens. A friendly face comes out and beckons you into safety. He says, come on in. And you go on in and you look inside and you think, oh, this is going to be okay. They shut the door. You run upstairs with your family and you look out of the top window of this fortress and you see that massive mob smashing on the doors trying to get in, but they cannot break it. If you can imagine that, then you'll start to get an idea of what a refuge is. A refuge, it's a place of shelter from harm. Harm is all around, it doesn't mean the harm is removed, but that harm can somehow not touch us in the way that we expected it would have. Because you're inside a refuge or inside a fortress. Well, the theme of God being a refuge from danger comes up quite a lot in the Psalms. Just in case you don't, didn't know, Psalms is not just one big book, but it's actually five different books of Psalms. And the idea of refuge and God as a refuge appears in 35% of the Psalms of Book 1, 25% of the Psalms in Book 2. It comes up a bit less in the rest of the books, but the point is, God as a refuge is an image that is threaded through all five books of the Psalms, especially the first two. And the message is simply this, in the midst of danger, trust in God. Now that might sound easy when the danger is not too great. You know, if you imagine yourself, you, you might have found yourself in Sainsbury's and you're trying to find a parking space and you're worried you wouldn't get it. And you pray that God would give you a space and maybe you get one. Oh, I trusted in God and a parking space appeared. Well, that's really lovely. Good for you. But that's hardly a dangerous situation. It's not hard to trust God in those sort of uh, scenarios. But the danger in this passage that we're reading today is absolutely major. The earth is giving way, the world is crumbling. This is a snapshot of uncreation, a little bit like what we talked about last time. But in the face of this horror, the message is still this, trust in God. Now you might think that sounds naive. 
even offensive that someone should say trust in God when the world's crumbling. Have you ever had that? Have you ever had someone come and say trust God when life's going awful? Maybe you've had the worst situation possible you can think of and someone says trust God and you feel like smacking him in the mouth. And yet the psalmist says just that. He makes no apology for his advice. He says that God really is our refuge and strength. It isn't some sort of cliche to keep your chin up. It's an actual reality. He's an ever-present help. He's always on hand when you need him. Now, to have that sort of confidence in the face of total destruction is nothing short of radical faith. And it's this radical faith that actually God is calling you and me to grasp hold of in our lives today. That no matter what life throws at us, we will trust in God. It doesn't mean we don't cry or grieve or shout, why have you forsaken me? But the idea is that we always come back to trusting in God. It's to have faith that God is God, even when the world is crumbling, because the world crumbling is not all there is. That there's hope, even though we can't see it. The message of this passage is do not give in to hopelessness, no matter what the circumstances are. That's what faith is. Faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. This is a radical faith. So if the harvest table of your life is empty, the idea is that we still somehow trust God with a strong faith because we're living by faith and not by sight. And I wonder, is your harvest table empty today? While other people have a bumper crop, do you feel like this year has brought a bad harvest? And for those of us with a good harvest, the time will come when you're looking for one year, maybe you'll think, man, the table seems pretty empty this year. I'd say to you, don't base your hope on what's on the table. This life is not all there is. Keep the faith. But to have a radical faith like that involves having a radical vision. And that involves a shift in our focus. There's certainly a shift of focus in this psalm. When the angry waters of verses 1 to 3 become the soothing rivers that gladden Jerusalem in verses 4 to 5. And in the midst of total destruction, the psalmist has a different vision. He sees something beyond the crumbling world. I saw a scan recently of, um, of Simon and Gemma's new baby, and uh, they're very clever, these scans, and um, very impressive. And uh, just this idea of these scams, uh, sc- scams, sorry, these scans, um, is fascinating because if you were to just look at somebody's bump who's pregnant, right? You know, if you were to just stare at their pregnant belly for a long time, well, firstly, you might get um, in trouble or um, possibly have a restraining order out on you. But secondly, you're not going to see anything in particular other than a bump because you can stare all you like, but to see that extra dimension, to see the baby inside, to see it actual as contours, you know, like you would in an ultrasound scan, you're going to need a scanner. You're going to need a machine that's able to look beyond. Now, this psalmist has an ultrasound prayer life, (laughs) if you know what I mean, in the sense that he can see beyond his situation to the kingdom of God, so that even though the world's collapsing, he's got no fear, so that the psalmist can even drown in the waters and still say God is good. You know, he calls us to have that same radical vision of faith, so no matter what life throws at us, um, you know, it doesn't mean that it's going to knock us down because we can see beyond it. It's a little bit like what James Bond would say, um, to be shaken and not stirred. The things life throws at us, no one's saying that you're not going to be shaken by it. And you may be going through things or you might go through things in the future that genuinely will shake you. And God is not saying, oh, don't act as if they're not shaky things. But we can be shaken but not stirred. Not stirred with the hope that we have in God and the hope that God is with us. 
that stirred from that fundamental that we will come back to after the shaking or even through the shaking. Paul says as much in 2 Corinthians 4, 7 to 10, where he says, We're hard pressed on every side, but not crushed, perplexed, but not in despair, persecuted, but not abandoned, struck down, but not destroyed. Or even in Philippians 1.21, when he says, For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. This is a man with a radical vision, because even death doesn't stop his hope. You know, with such a vision, we can have hope anywhere, no matter what our circumstances. But unfortunately, most of us can't help let our faith depend on our circumstances. So if things are going good, we praise God. But when things aren't, we grumble about them or stop believing. But Jesus calls us not to place so much emphasis in the physical world. It's important, but it's not primary. This radical faith, it's picked up by Jesus in Matthew 6, 25. He says this, Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink or about your body. What you will wear is more, is not, sorry, what, or what you will wear. Is not life more important than food and the body more important than clothes? Jesus isn't necessarily saying, don't worry, you'll definitely be fed somehow and be clothed without fail. Because when I first read that, I thought, well, that can't be right because there's people starving in the world. Now, of course, there's plenty of room to go, uh, food to go around. So um, people are starving in many ways because of the greed of, uh, of greedy nations, uh, including ours, I suppose. You know, we've got plenty of food while other people starve to death. But actually, rather, when you read that passage, what he's saying is like, you know, there's more to life than food and clothes. God will provide those things. But even if he doesn't, even if they're not there, you can actually be without them and still have what counts a relationship with God and the promise of eternity with him. In a cozy Western world, we do struggle with this concept. But in third world countries that are actually suffering famine and poverty, we see a much more mature faith than ours. Uh, There's people starving and struggling, and yet they have hope in God. Maybe that's why in the BBC survey, what the world thinks about God, they got some really interesting results. They asked who agreed with this statement. I find it hard to believe in God when there's so much suffering in the world. Now, I've heard a lot of people say that today, and maybe you've even thought that yourself. If that's true, then you're joining 52% of UK people. Because 52% of the UK people said that they agreed with that statement. Suffering made it hard for them to believe in God. But in Nigeria, with its problems of sectarian violence, it was 12%. That's all. And in Lebanon, with a history of civil war, it was 2%. So 98% said suffering didn't affect their belief in God. There's two countries who witness a lot more suffering in many ways than we do, but they believe more. And it reminds us that it is possible to look beyond your circumstances. And that ironically, the nicer your life is, sometimes the harder it can be to look beyond those circumstances and trust in God. And that's why in an affluent society like the UK, 52% of people have their faith knocked because of the suffering they see, even though... The suffering might not compare with some other countries. So we are called to have a radical faith and a radical vision. And the last thing he calls us to have is a radical stillness. A radical stillness. Verses 6 to 10, um, it brings a new image of God. And God is smashing stuff. He's smashing things up. And what's he destroying? Well, he is destroying, he's smashing the weapons of war. You know, God's not like some mild-mannered pacifist just sitting back and act and, and saying, oh, isn't it so awful? The world's a bad place. Um, that's, not, that's not to knock pacifists, by the way. But what I mean is he is actively bringing wars to cease in this passage. He's not laying back and saying, isn't the world horrible? But he is act, act, actually almost, well, he's dismantling the chaos of the world in this 
psalm, it's almost like he is at war with war. And then all of a sudden in verse 10, the star of the show himself, God breaks in and speaks and he says, be still and know that I am God. Now, there can be some misunderstanding about this verse. For many of us, we pluck this verse out of context. You know, you see this verse on posters and cards and bookmarks and we think, oh, be still and know that I am God. It makes us think, oh yes, let's re- you know, relax and be quiet and chilled out so, so that you can know God, you can hear him better. Well, that's partly true. But to be honest, it misses the context of this, where the verse comes from. The passage is all about war and chaos and fighting. And the original Hebrew for this idea of being still is more like stop, cease. So when God says, be still and know that I am God, in many ways he's saying, stop fighting. Pay attention to who I am. I'm God. When you sing that song, be still and know that I am God, think of it in those terms. Stop fighting. Put down your weapons. Stop struggling and I'm here. Because one of the reasons we can't trust in God in the midst of hard times is because we are struggling to do things in our own strength. We are battling against God or battling against the will of God um, or the will of other people sometimes. And then that struggle, we lose God's presence or the sense of his presence, I should say. Or we might be battling and struggling with simply our imaginations that bring up the worst case scenarios. You ever do that? You think about something and um, you assume the worst is gonna happen and God comes along and says, stop it, be still. Remember who I am, I'm God. Because, you know, God will have the final word in all of those struggles, all of your struggles. Terrorism, climate change, nuclear Armageddon, none of them will have the final word. Evil will not have the last, it will not have the final word. Evil will not have the last laugh. No, verse 10 says that even in the midst of this total destruction, his name will be exalted in the nations and in the earth. Even though it's hard to imagine in our dangerous world, the passage is saying, just like the mobile phone advert, the future's bright, the future's God's. You know, this psalm challenges us to have a radical faith. It's a radical faith where this guy in the passage can be drowning in the the chaos of the world. And I mean actually drowning, as in D-I-E, die drowning. (laughs) And yet, he still trusts in God. That's radical. And that's a faith that says to you today, Even if the doctor says to you, you have 10 minutes to live, it's not the end of your world. That's radical. Even if North Korea kick off a nuclear war or Iran or someone else starts a nuclear war tomorrow morning and the world is about to go up in a mushroom cloud and you look up in the sky and you see the nuclear bomb about to drop, it's not the end of your world. Now that is absolutely radical because it shows a mature faith that sees beyond circumstances and relies on the promises of God. It's faith that doesn't look at the mountain, but it looks at the mountain mover. It's faith that doesn't dwell on the problem, but it depends on the solution. It's faith that doesn't look at the current chapter, it looks at the ending. It's faith that doesn't give in to the chaos, but it bows the knee to the creator. And I'll tell you what, it is faith that says God is great, even though life is terrible. I don't know about you, but that sounds like a pretty radical faith. But the fact is that on this harvest day, God calls us to thank him if the tables fall and to thank him and praise him if the table's empty. And it's that sort of faith that God wants for every one of us. And with his help, and with the gift of faith from his Holy Spirit, we can do that.